This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is August 15th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is EJ Kretz, and I was with Hofstra Radio from 1999 through 2003. Okay. And what shows or programs did you work on, or what departments maybe were you in? I think I was all over the map. Uh, mm-hmm. I covered Rock and Roll Oasis. I did a little Jazz Cafe. I did Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. I did The Locker Room. I did Play by Play. Uh, I think maybe the only thing I didn't do was, uh, you know, the classical shows. Uh, but I, 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 I might be lying. Perhaps I even subbed in for one of those once upon a time. But I think for the most part, it was the Morning Wake Up Call, the Rock and Roll Oasis, and uh, being a part of the sports department. Okay. Did you ever work on any of the weekend shows or public affairs shows? No, but but to a point. So I always volunteered whenever we were having the marathons. I was always there. Was you know, always had a tremendous interest in that. As a extroverted broadcaster, mm-hmm. I never loved being part of those weekend shows because you never got the mic. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. always technical stuff. So uh, I never did that. But there was an exception. So and I can't remember the name of the show. Uh, but we used to do a show back then. I think it was on Sunday nights. It might have been called Anarchy or something mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, so I, I would sign up for a handful of those from time to time. And those were always a blast. Okay, cool. Uh, did you have any titles or positions at the station? Never had a single title or position And that's probably because I had no focus on one specific thing (laughs) and I was a little bit of a troublemaker. So uh, I was a little bit all over the board. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I hope we get into that a little bit. Um, (laughs) Did you use your own own name on the air? Did you have any nicknames or aliases? You know, I I used my own name on the air until I went to commercial radio. So there was actually a point during my Hofstra time where I started uh, as a jock doing graveyard shifts on the weekend at the old 92.7 WLIR. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point that our program director, a guy named Gary C., uh, right before my first air shift, he said, look, you, you can't use your real last name and you can't just be EJ. Uh, and this was maybe five minutes before my first mic break. So I really had no idea what to do. And he said, well, you know, the adage is you either pick a last name that starts with the first initial of your first name or you do the street you grew up on. And I grew up on a street called Kawiset, So it wasn't going to be that. <laughs> and he goes, you're EJ Evans, go. And I was EJ Evans at WLIR and on into uh, two different radio groups after graduation uh, from, from then on until I, until I left radio. Okay. Very interesting. Um, two-part question here and answer it however it makes sense to you. Uh, I always want to know what is it that brought people to Hofstra Radio? And then if you could describe the first time you got to the station, whether it was a meeting or uh, a tryout or something like that, what was that like? Where was the station? Do you remember any of the people or what it looked like or what it smelled like? What was going on when you first got to Hofstra Radio? All right. So I remember this like it was yesterday. Um, My first time that I ever saw the radio station was during my tour as an aspiring freshman at Hofstra. And I remember getting out of the car at the admissions center with my mother. I got out of the car. I looked around. I said, this is where I'm going to school. Wow. There was just something about 
yeah, I don't know if it was the tulips or whatever it was. There was just <laughs> something about being there. And um, I loved being close to the beach, being close to Manhattan, um, but but had heard so much about the School of Communication, and I wanted to be a sportscaster. So, you know, it, you basically have BU, Syracuse, Emerson, UCLA, like those are the schools. But when I went to Syracuse, you know, I said, well, how soon can I touch the equipment? How soon can I get on air? And the answer was almost always junior year. Wow. And then we got to what was then known as Dempster Hall. And I had the opportunity just by chance to meet the legendary Ed Engels mm-hmm. uh, while on my Hofstra tour. And I asked him the exact same question. And his answer to me was, how soon do you want to get on air? Because however soon you want to get on air, that's how fast we're going to put you on air. And it was not even a question in terms of where I wanted to go to school. I applied, or Hofstra was the only school I applied to. Uh, got an early admission. That was it. Decision made. Uh, so very early on as a freshman, uh, I applied to join the radio station. That was the very first thing I did on campus was let me go down to WRHU and put in my application to join the training class. Uh, went through the interview and and here's where it gets interesting. So I vividly remember my interview sitting in in Bruce Avery's office with with Ed uh, in that, you know, that corner fishbowl office that Bruce had. Um had a great interview, had a great time. Uh, but this was September of 99. Um, and there was a bad storm on Long Island that night. Uh, you know, it was like a near miss hurricane or something like that. And the walk back to my dorm wasn't the best time to go do it. So I said, let me, I'm just going to tool around the building a little bit, wait for the storm to kind of calm down a bit. And that's when I saw down on the TV side of the building, I saw Phil Sims, legendary quarterback, mm-hmm. chatting with then New York Jets head coach Bill Parcells. And this wasn't completely crazy because the Jets still practice at Hofstra then, but it was didn't make sense. Why are they why are they in Dempster Hall and why are there all the there's a lot of commotion around the TV studios? So I went up to a guy who I didn't know. I said, Hey, I, I'm new here. What's what's going on? And it was then that he told me that CBS 2 uh, filmed the Jets pregame show every Wednesday uh, at Dempster Hall. And it was hosted by Phil Sims, featuring Bill Parcells and a different player every week. I said, look, I, I'm a freshman. I want to be a sportscaster. Is there any way you'd let me just sit in the back of the room and just I, I don't I won't talk. I won't bother you. I just want to watch. He said, you know, we had a production assistant. No show for work today. Would you like a job on the show? Wow. Like, come on, like no, right? So he offers me a job, a hundred bucks a week. Here's the catch. They film the show the exact same time as the WRHU training class. So I do, I take a paid job with CBS sports two weeks into my freshman year. Or do I let that opportunity go by the wayside and, and dive headfirst into radio? And uh, I took the money and ran. So there's no way I can turn down a paid job with a network uh, doing what I want to do to go play around on a college radio station. So I, I declined the invitation to join WRHU, which led to, which I wish I had this recording, uh, an incensed 
a very upset voicemail from Ed Engels. Really? Telling me that now here's a guy who worked for CBS, right? Uh, telling me this is one of the biggest mistakes I could make in my college career. Uh, this is going to set me behind. Uh, you know, he just went on and on. This was like a two minute voicemail in typical Ed fashion. And I called him back and we had a very polite discussion. And I ultimately did defer my participation in WRHU one semester uh, to that spring so that I could uh, take the job with CBS, uh, which which opened some doors and cool opportunity and and different things that I never would have experienced otherwise. But the truth is, it did set me back relative to my peers, particularly in the sports department. So there were other folks who did join that fall class, who were getting broadcast time, who were getting to call games, who were forming friendships. Um, and, and so that was a little bit of a bummer, right? But um, if I had it to do all over again, I honestly don't know which decision I would make. Uh, but it was certainly a memorable way uh, to get into WRHU. Um, and really from that spring on, I mean, I was I was head first into WRHU to the point where I, I think it was my maybe my spring of sophomore year. I was head first into sports. Uh, I got to call a a women's softball world series out at Stanford in California. Like this was my life. And I stopped going to classes. And I remember wow. Bruce called me when he's like, you got to go to class. Cause he saw me in the conference room every day, just hanging out with the sports guys. And I was, he's like, you must have classes. Right. Uh, and turns, I actually flunked an entire semester Oof. because all I did was hang out at the radio station. Um, and I remember I, I, I was very blessed as a student. My parents had saved for college. I took out a college loan to pay them back for that one semester. I spent the summer back at school catching up, but still at the radio station, which that turned out to be great too, because summer at WRHU back then, there weren't a lot of kids there. So you got a ton of airtime and you got a ton of great experience. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of my entry into it. Uh, and I'll, I'll just never forget the voicemail from Ed saying, you're making a huge mistake taking a paid job uh, with a network to to go join a training class for a college radio station. Wow, um, I, I got two questions out of that story. When when you said Phil Sims and Bill Parcells standing there in the hallway, I, it kind of caught my breath a little bit because I grew up a Giants fan, and I'm I'm old enough that. Uh, when the Giants were playing, I, I didn't understand the game yet. I thought the point of the game was to go three plays and kick the ball away. So I went through a long time and then Parcells came and rescued the franchise. So when you say those names, I think I would drop what I was doing and go join and be a production assistant to see those guys in the room. What was your relationship with Giants football at the time or was it just sports in general? So in sports in general, I, I'm a New Englander. I grew up a Patriots fan, but okay. that led to my interest in Bill Parcells. So follow the timeline. Bill Parcells had just left the New England Patriots. He had taken the team to a Super Bowl, brought them back to relevance, and then ended up with the Jets. You know, took his groceries and went down to Hempstead. Yeah. And um, so, so for me, Bill Parcells represented less about the Giants, uh, 
uh, and more about being our former head coach. And Phil Simms also less about being the Giants and more, you know, he was doing color for CBS A game at the time. So, you know, I think it was Sims and Gumball. So for me, Phil Simms was the voice of my Sunday afternoons. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, that was really the the sort of intrigue there. But but you'll appreciate this having grown up a Giants fan was, you know, the, the, it was a 30 minute show that took about two hours to produce. Right. And there would be times where Phil and coach would be sitting in director's chairs in between takes, maybe waiting for, you know, a player to, to come down to do their segment. And they would bicker and fight like schoolgirls over very specific plays in very specific games. And it just, it, it fascinated me the level of, um, just they remembered everything. And, and still like, competitive about two? it. Oh my God. Like, and still be upset. Phil would be like, yeah. remember week two against Dallas, you called in that stupid play and I threw a pick and and Phil and coach would be like, well, that's because you threw a shitty ball. And you know, they would be almost like they were still with the giants. And I can only imagine what the Monday morning quarterback meetings used to been like, because they were still at each other's throats years later over basic plays. And I'm just sitting there like, get, get your popcorn. Cause they should have just recorded that and guarantee you somewhere in New York city is old beta tape. Because they were still mic'd up, and I know those cameras were rolling. That stuff exists somewhere, mm. <laughs> um, and, and it was just—it was fascinating to hear them talk X's and O's. But how specific those X's and O's were years later was just incredible. That's 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 a great anecdote. And and here I was thinking we were going to be friends, and then you said you're a Patriots fan. But I think you <laughs> redeemed yourself there. I think I think we can we can be okay now. Awesome. My second okay. my second question. Sorry, couldn't help it. Uh, my second question is. So you're interested in being a sportscaster, and one of the first people you meet is Ed Ingalls, and this has become yeah. a theme with a talk to a lot of sports guys. It's like, did you know who Ed was at the time? You know, sort of, sort of. So growing up, uh, my family, we were really good friends with a family in Maryland, and so every summer we would drive to Maryland as part of a summer vacation, and I had grandparents who lived on Long Beach who we would also go to visit. I had an Mm -hmm. aunt who lives in Manhattan who we'd go to visit. And my dad, you know, you got to think this is the 80s. There's no GPS. Right. You want to know what the traffic is? You've got to turn on WCBS 880. So I remember Ed Ingalls, the voice from my youth in the car. And there was instant recall. Did Did I at the time appreciate you know, the incredible career that he had? Absolutely not. It was just a voice of my childhood that was like, oh, <laughs> you you used to be in my car and now you're in front of me. That's so cool. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing to make that connection. And yet you told the guy, no, no, mm. thank you. I'll be back later. Yeah, I got one word for my reason <laughs> and that's ego. Uh I mean, just like, I, I don't, the, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm still a card carrying ego guy today. I've just learned how to manage it. Mm -hmm. But back then, I mean, I thought 
I thought I was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I was going to come into that place and be the best broadcaster that Hofstra had ever seen. And, um, you know, because I had, I did some broadcasting as a kid, um, but then I learned there were lots of people there who had done broadcasting as a kid. I mean, I couldn't, I don't, Dave Plotkin is a name that comes to yeah. mind. I couldn't hold Dave Plotkin's microphone. That dude like shined so much brighter than me and does to this day. Um, and so once I got into the four walls of WRHU it was a very humbling experience to realize that, okay, you're, you might be talented, but so is everybody else around you. So time to, time to kind of rise up. So, um, yeah, that I, I'd still look back and can't believe I said, no, <laughs> mm. I mean, I eventually said yes. But yeah. No, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you do come back, you do come back to the station and I guess there's a training class that happens. Yeah. Do you remember anything about that? Uh, who was in it or who taught it or anything that you learned that was especially useful? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the executive board being a part of it. I remember the the initial and very passionate introduction from Bruce. Mm-hmm. You know, Bruce was, you know, in many ways, um, you know, a bit of an unintentional and underappreciated mentor to me. Uh, you know, we both had Boston roots and and kind of instantly bonded over that. Um, he was hard on me. And I think the reason he was hard on me was because he cared mm-hmm. and because he saw wasted potential, somebody who I really wasn't taking a lot seriously. And I think that made him mad. Um, and looking back on it, I can understand why that made him mad. Um, but, but like I said earlier, I was a troublemaker. So, you know, back then it was taken very, very seriously that this is a non-commercial radio station and you are not to play singles from any band. You don't play the singles, you play the B sides because you have to produce content that is not available on commercial radio. And I think it was my first or God, I was a jerk. I think it was my first or second air shift. After the training class, I was on the rock and roll oasis and Bruce is walking down the hall and I'm playing hotel California. Oh, geez. (laughs) And he comes in, he goes, what are you playing? I was like, hotel California. He goes, you couldn't have picked a more commercially widespread single in the history of music. What are you thinking? And I said, well, Bruce, this is off the live from the Hollywood Bowl album. They don't play the live version on commercial radio. So I didn't think that that was a problem because you can only hear this version on non-commercial radio. And, you know... I don't know, I kind of got them there, right? Like, I, but I twisted the I twisted the rules to my advantage, and that was like a, a little microcosm of the relationship that we had, uh, where we had like the most laughs, but some some headbutting too. But you know, back to the training class, I, I remember it just being so technical in nature and learning the difference between AM and FM and the different types of microphones and overmodulation and that stuff. I couldn't have been less interested. But the funny thing is now, 
So these days I'm a customer experience consultant and I spend an awful lot of time keynote speaking around the country. And there are things I learned in that training class, mm -hmm. like around overmodulation, around things like how to appropriately hold a microphone, how the microphone works. I'm a better keynote speaker today because of the WRHU training class. And that wasn't the intention of the class, certainly, but but the halo effect, because think of how many WRHU participants leave and they don't seek a career in radio. I've got an old buddy who he's a, a financial advisor now. He had no, he wasn't a broadcast major. He had no interest in being a broadcaster, but it was something fun for him to do. He loved music. So that was his extracurricular activity. He worked on the ska show. Remember ska? Um, he worked on the ska show. Um, so yeah, that, that was, um, you know, an interesting connection between the training class and, you know, life afterwards. But I just remember it being like overly technical and boring. And it was like, let me just learn enough to pass the test and get on the air. The last thing I wanted to learn was the technical stuff. And I feel like every time I sat in that class, I think it was like Wednesday nights at seven. Dude, I didn't want to be at the training class. I want to be at the bar. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was 18. It was Hofstra. Um, but I just want to learn enough of the technical stuff to pass the test. You know, for me, it was a means to get on the air. Um, and, and even once I was on the air, I remember thinking, oh, they, they taught us how to do that in training class. I don't, I don't really remember. Uh, and so thankfully after the training class, you had to ease into being on the air and had to do some shadowing and different shifts and things like that. So, um, I, I learned so much in that, in that class and, and certainly uh, the fall class was the one you wanted to be in. The spring class was sort of some people who needed something else to do, I felt like, at that time. But uh, certainly made a lot of friends and, and had a lot of good times. So you go through this training class and uh, you learn this stuff and some of it you can use right away and some of it obviously will come up later on. Do you remember getting on the air the first time you mentioned that you may have done a little broadcasting prior to coming to Hofstra? Do you remember your feelings about getting on the air or anything in particular that was going on? I was terrified um, because my previous on-air experience had been non-technical in nature. All I had to do was talk on a microphone. Mm -hmm. Now I had to run a board and that, was that was my weakness and and over the years i learned to run a really tight board and i still <laughs> i have some air check tapes somewhere in my house and i remember i pulled them out maybe i don't know 10 years ago and and gave them a listen and i would hear a song end i'd hear the music bed start that i was intending to talk over as part of my mic break and that music bed would run for like 20 seconds before i opened my mic oh no and like terrible, but that was actually that was not abnormal. The level of broadcast acumen at WRHU from when I was there in the late '90s, early 2000s to today is so different and so vastly improved. But I I look back on that and I'm like, a my music beds were long, b my sweeps were terrible, and c I had diarrhea of the mouth. Uh, so I was an atrocious broadcaster, certainly in those early times. And I was nervous and kind of trying to show off and be a little cute and everything. And, and listening back to it, it was terrible radio. 
Well, that's that's where we we learn uh, the skills and the practice, and and you you try a bunch of times and and you see what works. Do you remember anybody who was maybe on the air or a little bit ahead of you at the station that maybe you listened to, or someone who maybe gave you good advice, or or you said, "Well, I'm going to do a little of that. I'm going to do a little less of this." Yeah, I mean, definitely the sports guys were were like instant uh, in terms. You know, Keith Arizari is a guy who I think of who wasn't that much older than me who right away I was like, all right, this is the guy. He's got it figured out. I want to be just like him. There was a guy who was my age, who's a great friend of mine still to this day, Michael Corbett, who um, you know, had his own sort of style. Um, another guy, Marcus Sigliano, who I think still works in TV today, who is doing these killer like rock and roll oasis shows and was super creative and was coming up with these hilarious bits. So, you know, I think that there were people who I, I enjoyed watching and hearing and, and certainly tried to, tried to emulate. Um, and, you know, even to this day, see what they're doing and just respect the heck out of them. I love it when I'm in the car and hear Keith on the radio doing CBS stuff. I, Michael Corbett is running for New York state Senate right now. Uh, we were on the air together on September 11th and I look back, uh, you know, at, at those days and what he's doing today. And I'm like, this is the guy who, uh, he was, he, he, I remember he, uh, he had narcolepsy and we were calling a Hofstra lacrosse game, um, against Notre Dame. And he was my color commentary guy and Hofstra upset Notre Dame in overtime. And I'm doing the call and, giving it my all and I turned to Mike to do the color commentary and he fell asleep and uh, he was so excited. He just, he fell asleep. Uh, so those are guys that for one reason or another, uh, I always looked at and, and said, these are the guys I want to be like. Wow. Um, I, I'm taking a, a wild guess here, but I'm guessing socially you felt comfortable at the station right away. It seems like you found a group of people that you liked being around and and you got into it right away. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely like a core group of friends. But what was really interesting, and I don't know if this is the case today, but back then, a lot of the people who were most active at the radio station did not live on campus. Hmm. And so it was a unique thing for me. Like back then, I think it was about a 60-40 split at Hofstra between the kids on campus and just local Long Island kids. And um so I had, you know, sort of my core group of friends on campus from my dorm or later from my fraternity. I was active in the Hofstra Rec Center and intramural sports. So I kind of had like a lot of different pocket of friends. And the WRHU friends were the ones that we shared career interests, but also kind of indoctrinated me into Long Island a little bit, too, because they they were locals. Um, so they were they were a very special and unique group. And um, definitely like the banquet every year um, was, was a highlight all the time. Um, you know, we used to go out for karaoke at the Tin Alley Grill and, and, and back then there was a bit of collaboration between the radio side of the building and the TV side of the building. And that later on, uh, as I, I ended up, uh, being asked to leave WRHU, uh, late my senior year, uh, I, I snuck over to the TV side and started, I actually created a TV show for Hofstra Entertainment uh, television 
that still exists today. They just celebrated their 20th anniversary of this show that I co-created. Um, and so it was like, it was cool to kind of have both sides of the building and different group of friends. But like Dempster Hall was my house. Like that was, I lived there. If I wasn't in class or playing an intramural sport, I, the odds were really good. I was in that building and, and hanging out with my friends. And even years later, my fraternity brothers are not the guys that I really keep in touch with. It's my WRHU friends. Uh, those were, those were really the folks. And, and when, when Ed was retiring and, you know, had his farewell there that weekend, I mean, like I was on the airplane, like that was not something I remember telling my wife, like, I have to be in New York. There's no, I can't not be in New York to say goodbye, you know, to add, cause you know, that was, that was family and that was so important. Hmm. Um, do you remember getting started with the, with the sports department? Do you remember, uh, how you started getting into either calling games or producing or, or doing updates? What, what happened there? Yeah. I mean, you had to work your way up, you know? So that, back then it was as simple as raising your hand. Hey, I want to do sports. And, uh, you know, I think there was a core group of maybe eight or 10 of us, you know, it wasn't a large group. Um, and, uh, you know, you had to start off working the board and I think the very first time I ever actually got to pick up a microphone out of the studio was as a sideline reporter for a women's basketball game. And, um, that was kind of the progression. You started off as a board op and you would do the locker room and then you get to be a sideline reporter. And it was, it was really, uh, a tenure track kind of thing. So the longer you'd been around, the better games you got, maybe even got to do some road trips. Um, and, and it was a little bit of time before I got to move up and, and do play by play. I remember my first play by play was a home women's basketball game. And I was terrible, uh, non-descriptive, didn't bring the game to life. Wasn't a good storyteller, dead air, um, but that's, you know, they, they started you on, you know, uh, not to be offensive, but you tend to start it on women's sports. And then you got to back then we had football. This was back when, uh, you know, the, the flying Dutchman at the time, you know, we mm -hmm. were in the men's NCAA tournament under speedy Claxton. And, um, those were the things that I was really aspiring towards, but, you had to raise your hand and just start to work your way up and prove yourself. And the better you were and the more dedicated you were, the better games you got. And I, I remember every year when the school year started, we would have a meeting. Uh, I, Vinnie Micucci was our, our sports director at the time. And we would sit down in, in the conference room and he would have the whole schedule and that we would sit down and find out what games we got and who we were paired with and that was like the favorite day of the year was the day you found out what games you were going to get to go do. And do I get to go on any cool uh, road trips or maybe even get on an airplane that I don't have to pay for? Uh, that was just, that was the coolest stuff. Um, no doubt. Um, it, you know, maybe second only to election night coverage. So the funny thing was back then the news department was also pretty small. So when election night coverage happened, they had to get the sports and it was guys. There were no women doing sports back then, believe it or not. Um, they got the sports guys involved. Why? Because we were the only ones who knew how the remote equipment worked. Mm -hmm. 
So if we were going to go out to an election night coverage, and I remember I was at Rick Lazio headquarters the night that he was running for Senate against Hillary Clinton. And um, that's where I was. And I got to be on mic with uh, Danielle DeLillo, who works, I think, now for iHeart and Danny G, who is a director for MLB TV. Um, and we were at Rick Lazio headquarters together, kind of kind of doing our thing. And that that got me interested in news, too. Um, but that was like a really fun crossover that the sports people had to be involved in the new stuff when it came to live coverage, particularly remote coverage, because, uh, uh, otherwise you weren't getting on the air if you didn't have a sports person with you. Mm. And, and I think just the nature of covering so many local elections, you need as many bodies, uh, as possible. Do you remember getting any prep from the news department beforehand or is it, or is it up to you to figure that out? You know, we would have meetings, particularly before election night coverage. We would have a lot of prep meetings, but I was also a broadcast journalism student. Um, so while I wanted to be a sportscaster, my, my primary study was journalism and, and learning to become a storyteller. Um, so a lot of the prep we would go through was relative to the timeline, the clock rotation, the technical aspects, we, we were probably less sophisticated back then than we, you know, the, than they are today. Uh, the newsroom at WRHU back then was next to Ed's office, I remember. Um, it was no bigger than like, uh, I don't know, throw four porta potties together. Like that's how big the newsroom was. And there was two computers, one dot matrix printer a recording bay, one microphone, like a Mackie mixer. Like that was it. The, there were very little editing capabilities, no room to write. You could get on AP and print some stuff. And, and that was kind of it, you know? Um, so looking back on the work that we did from a news perspective, particularly on 9-11, it's amazing we got the work done that we got done because we just didn't have the news facilities that, the organization has today. And and in some cases you have to get creative and make do, you know, if you don't have those, those pieces of equipment or facilities available, you have to get, uh, you know, down to another level and and make it happen another way. So uh, I'm sure we could spend uh, quite a lot of time talking about the experiences on, on nine 11. And do you remember where you were uh, when you heard what was going on? Yeah, I had, I was actually in Dempster. I had to leave early because what people forget is that day was election day in New York city. Mm -hmm. Um, and my professor at the time, whose name I don't remember, she was a working journalist. Um, and so she had to cut class early to get into the city to work. Um, and so I, it was an 8am class. So, you know, you know, the nine 11 timeline. Um, and, uh, I was walking back to my dorm in the nine o'clock hour. And I remember seeing, um, uh, my friend, Justin Strauber, who was like a real engineer, you know, an engineer's engineer, uh, running out of our dorm. And Justin was a guy who does not run. He's running out of our dorm and, uh, walked back, walked into the dorm, saw one of the girls from the floor. She's like, did you hear what happened? And it's like, no, it's like a plane crashed in New York city into one of the buildings. That was, that was it. That, that was the only information, you know, we, anyone in the world really had at that time. Um, and that, but that told me why Justin was running. Right. So then I started running and that was sort of what happened that day 
was WRHU became a magnet for all of us. You know, for whatever reason, a lot of us felt, okay, where do we, where do we need to be right now? We need to be at WRHU. Uh, we need to cover this. And it was just by sheer happenstance that I was one of the first people with any level of experience that arrived there. And it was like, we'll, we'll get on the air. And I, I think I was on the air that day on and off throughout the day from about 10 to six, 10 to seven. Um, and, and Michael Corbett, who lived in New York City and commuted to Hofstra, he was in the city. He was on his cell phone for as long as they worked as like our in-city correspondent. And I remember Bruce ordered pizza and pizza was coming in. And there, there must have, I don't know, there must have been a hundred of us there. Just covering the event throughout the day and watching it on television. And I, I will never forget though, this is, I won't bore the whole day's story, but I will never forget. Um, when we had to announce, because the Hofstra Public Safety had actually called the radio station, I mean, looking back on it, the odds are good, no one was listening to us, but um, they wanted to announce that the towers, the six dormitory towers at Hofstra were not being evacuated. I'll never forget that. I'll mm. never forget announcing that the dorms were not being evacuated. Just like I won't ever forget when we took a brief break and Bruce came in rub my shoulders and said, calm down. Cause the adrenaline was through the roof, you know? Um, so yeah, we were, we were on, gosh, we were on moments after the first tower was hit and we stayed on the air till, you know, seven, seven ish that night. Um, just, just learning on the fly and Ed was coaching us as we went and, you know, we learned how to do breaking news that day. Wow. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, it's a topic that's come up a few times. I recently talked to to Bruce and, and we talked about that and uh, a couple of Dave Plotkin, a few other people who were there that day. And it, it's not just 9-11, although that certainly is, is uh, a huge example of this, but the idea that there's something in radio people or, or journalists that make them run to a radio station or run to a scene uh, as opposed to being observers, right? People who, who go to that. And I don't, I don't really have a question, but it's come up a couple times recently and I'm going to try to ask it here. It's like, what is it or is there something different in some of us? What is it that makes us go, I'm, I'm going to grab a microphone and go run to this thing or run to an event and tell people about it. Cause not everybody wants to do that. It's something, I think it's something specific and I think it's something special. You know, and I think part of it is just simply history. You know, we remember the world's biggest events due to the images that were provided to us by broadcast media and the broadcast voices that represent that, that great event, be it either war, tragedy, triumph, sports, you name it, uh, you know, JFK's assassination, landing on the moon, you pick your moment. There's a broadcaster typically associated with that moment as well. And I think that's part of the drive for us to become broadcasters is, is to give the world that moment. But then I also think about people like Justin who 
wasn't an on-microphone broadcaster. He was he had the passion for engineering, but but he too recognized the story can't be told without the technical side of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's the only thing broadcasters share in common with first responders is that that instant adrenaline rush of um, I have a responsibility to somebody and something greater than me. Um, and, and that's the only way I think I could really describe it. it it's such an intangible, the sort of internal thing. You know, we have a drive to be storytellers. We have the drive to, to, to help people know what's going on. Uh, and so we run. It's what we do. We just, we run. Mm. Thank you. That was, that was, that was great. Uh, thank, th- thank you for, uh, for talking so openly about that. It, it is a, it's a hard thing to know, but I think that's, that's part of this process, uh, of doing this oral history is, is getting to understand kind of not just that we've done things, but, but why we do the things that we do. Um, so if, if I could off of that, We've got this history, you've got these experiences, these friendships, these relationships, careers, all the things, and we're looking backwards. I'm going to ask you, and you can pick whatever moment you want, but I want you to go back in time to being 18 years old and showing up on the Hofstra campus and either that, that, that first meeting with Ed or maybe the time where you said, Ed, I'll come back, or when you did show up at the beginning of your career as a freshman, what did you hope Hofstra Radio would be and what did it become? I hoped it would be the springboard for my career as the next, you know, Jim Nance or, you know, pick your, pick your famous broadcaster, Chris Berman, whoever. Uh, I thought I'm in New York. I've got a world-class education ahead of me broadcast facilities that, let me tell you, I didn't know how good I had it. Mm-hmm. I remember the day I showed up to WLIR and I was, oh, oh my goodness, this place is a dump. Here was my first commercial radio station. And by the way, every commercial radio station I've ever worked for, I would say paled in comparison from a technical standpoint to WRHU. So, you know, that's certainly what I thought would was this is the place that is going to propel my career as a world class, not necessarily famous, but world class broadcaster. And if I'm famous too, awesome. Um, and what it became was, I think, more so a place that taught me how to be a professional. Because what people don't realize coming into a place like WRHU is that in many ways, it's an unpaid job. It is a professional working environment in large part because that is uh, what Bruce Avery has created is a professional broadcast environment with bosses and hierarchy and rules. And it just doesn't come with a paycheck. But you have to comport yourself in that environment just as though you were in any private company. And looking back on it, I think more than learning how to be a skilled broadcaster, that's what WRHU gave me, was it taught me how to be a grown-up in a work environment, 
long before I even had to worry about an internship or my first real paid job, I learned how to be a grown-up in a work environment because it was a work environment and there was accountability and there were consequences. Uh, and, and honestly, I would take that over becoming that world-class famous broadcaster. Uh, if I had to pick one or the other, I'm so glad that it taught me how to be a professional adult. EJ, this has been a tremendous conversation. I think we covered uh, a lot of bases here. We covered a lot of emotions and and a lot of great stories. Uh, I have a feeling you've got more stories. And, we, and we, I, don't we all, aren't we supposed to, as broadcasters, we're all supposed to have our stories and just want to tell them all that. <laughs> this, this is what I'm saying. We're radio people. We've got zeros and ones here. Let's, let's tell some stories. Well, let's, let's tell some stories another, another day sometime. I think this would, that would be great. I, I'd love it. And thank you, uh, you know, not only for giving me the opportunity to document some of these things, because let's face it, um, you know, we're all going to be gone someday. Mm-hmm. Um, and there aren't a lot of tapes, you know, so to, to tell these stories and retell these stories, I think at your average college radio station, this isn't an important exercise. Um, at WRHU, it is. So thanks for the opportunity to tell the story and for putting this together. And I look forward to sharing more in the future.